0: Hello, writers, healers, survivors, thrivers. I'm Grant Faulkner, executive director of NaNoWriMo, and I'm here with my podcasting partner, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, I'm excited about our guest today, Charlie Jane Anders, because she's always had a big presence in the San Francisco literary scene, both as a writer and with her famous reading series, Writers with Drinks, which she's emceed for years with a signature style. And now it's a treat to talk today about Charlie Jane's new book, Never Say You Can't Survive, because I believe it's the first writing book, at least the first one I've encountered, that directly speaks to writing in this strange and traumatic time of ongoing crisis that we're in. And it's a book that's full of inspiration and commentary on things like imposter syndrome and world building and irony and writing blocks of all kinds. But it's also a rousing call for why reading and writing fiction is important. And why it was important to her in particular, she faced an assortment of personal and global crises in 2020. And that's one thing that's interesting about it, to see how even an award-winning author like Charlie Jane, who has been writing for years, struggled a lot during this time and how she overcame her struggles. And Brooke, I've got to admit, I've had a very uneven pandemic myself when it comes to creative matters and general mental equilibrium. So I wondered how you're doing creatively these days.
1: Yeah, uh, I am struggling. Honestly, it's interesting. We should be talking about this today because I am and have been and I'm looking forward to NaNoWriMo for that very reason and just find today's topic to be perfect. Uh, You know, I have a new book project that I'm tackling with what I would describe as the opposite of gusto at the moment. Uh, You know, I'm definitely finding little pockets here and there, but I know that my waning or low energy around it is very connected to these global crises. You know, it's this, extended covid period it's uh you know having had james home from school for a year but then the unknown of what's coming you know fears of breakthrough covid and then for us in california wildfire season you know which is just constant at this point uh and i just won't even get into the more existential crises you know of which there are many right yeah uh so Charlie Jane definitely picked a good topic and and she writes about it also really eloquently. I just think this is the the timing is very um perfect for me personally Uh, you know certainly I know I'm not alone either and I I, about last month maybe a few weeks ago I posted about my creative slump on Facebook and I had something like 150 responses of people sharing their ideas for overcoming slumps but also they were saying you know me too so that was heartening but also I was looking around being like it's just a hard time right now and I feel that um so yeah what's it what's it been like for you Grant?
0: I like the way you put that. I think you said you, you you're approaching your current writing project with something less than gusto. I was very yeah,
1: opposite hard. of gusto. Oppos- <laughs> opposite of gusto. Okay, something
0: less than gusto is way too polite. I think I'm in that opposite of gusto camp too. I've been feeling, you know, pretty creatively challenged of late, and I notice my appetites for books and shows have also changed. You know, I used to love gritty, realistic dramas that, you know, made me confront tough issues and do deep thinking, but I. Find that of late, I've been searching out escapist stories, especially when it comes to the things I view. So, I've been thinking about escapism a lot of late and the role it plays. And, you know, I've written a lot about why writing matters. And I always mention escapism and entertainment on the list, but I've tended to rank them lower than other things, you know. But I'll never do that again because I actually think escapism (laughs) is a really valuable on a bunch of different levels and we need to honor it. Um, You know, for one, it gives us a break from the real world and a break is a good thing just for the sake of resting, for experiencing pleasure and relief. And I've been thinking how America is such a Puritan achievement oriented nation in so many ways. And I've certainly internalized those things. So we often undervalue things like rest and pleasure and what they contribute, you know, not only to a healthy soul, mind and body, but also what pleasure and escape do for us creatively. You know, escape nourishes us in short. Mm -hmm. So the next time I hear somebody downplay the value of escapist fantasy or romance stories, I'm going to take exception. How do you feel about escapist literature or shows, Brooke?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you're going to take exception. You know, someone absolutely has to be the champion. (laughs) And I think Charlie Jane is too. You know, I completely agree. Like we're all like just dying for replenishment here. And yeah, I mean, I've always yearned for escape. I mean, I think that's why people are drawn to travel. And I think it's why people are drawn to movies and TV. Because intellectually, of course, that requires less work. You know, you can be carried off into this visual world and you do less heavy lifting, of course. And I think I used to have more energy for tackling big, meaty books. There's no question that I had more energy for that before I became a parent. But, you know, the notion today that I'm going to like... Pick up and be able to finish a 500 page book right now feels really daunting, which is uh, why, largely, if I am recommended a book like that, I'll get it on Audible. Like I did listen to some insanely long books, like I listened to Helter Skelter uh, in the summer of 2020, you know, and I think it was something like 28 hours of audio. And yet, I just did order recently Oprah's latest book pick which is The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois uh, by Honoré Jeffers which is 800 pages and I am sort of wondering if I'm going to be able to get through it but I just have heard from so many people that it's amazing so uh I was curious if maybe Oprah was trying to nudge people towards some of these Tome like novels. um, But, you know, this is the kind that people are saying they were sad when it was over. Right. So I guess I'm trying to speak, I guess, to people's attention spans, which I think are largely down. People seem to have less time more stuff stacked up on our to-do lists and then at the end of the day we're probably crashing into a tv show or a movie instead of into a book Um, but you know obviously this is all just anecdotal so uh, yes to escapism (laughs) and i hope that i can escape into a novel that's 800 pages you know we'll see
0: yeah it's been a while for me since i've tackled a big novel like that Charlie Jane actually views escapism as a type of resistance, which I think is interesting. And she said that people sometimes talk about escapist storytelling as if it's running away from the fight. But she says visualizing a happier and more just world is a direct assault on the forces that are trying to break your heart. Which I think is a pretty cool way to put it. Her book and the way it addresses the traumatized psyche, you know, made me think, wonder a lot about the no pain, no gain approach to writing – that we've borrowed from sports, I think, over the years. And I thought of Simone Biles in particular and how she recently opted to drop out of the Olympics because she valued her health more than any Olympic glory. And that reminded me of Carrie Strug, who was famous for doing the vault when she had an injured ankle in the Olympics way back in 1996. And she was pressured into doing that by her coach and probably others. And, and yes, it was a great story of uh, sports triumph, but she also could have injured herself severely. So I, I wonder about the dangers of an extreme mindset and how we tend to celebrate that in our culture. And I think about writers during this time and how maybe writing on days when you don't feel like it or writing that extra 500 words, you know, whatever it might be, maybe it's not so important right now. Maybe health, mental health, physical health is more important. It's a tough balancing act because it's so often, you know, it, it it does. We have to recognize it also takes pushing through discomfort to finish a book or possibly even just to be creative every day. It takes discipline. So, you know, my question is, how do we balance discipline, determination and our drive with the need to also give ourselves a break?
1: Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you bringing up this Simone Biles example, because I think this summer she was really the poster child in some ways for what happens when people get pushed too far and and saying no and honoring her body, you know, and I certainly know in the circles that I run in and the social media that I look at, she was heroic for saying no. And I, I think it's also because she hit a moment where we're all feeling that way. You know, it's like this quintessential American value that we have to push through and to do it anyway. And we're gonna be celebrated if we're, you know, just Over the top, busy and productive, and of course, there are sacrifices that are made along the way. I certainly feel that for myself, and and I think it's one of the reasons that I'm struggling with this book. Not so much that I don't want to write the book, or you know, that I shouldn't write the book, but that I set myself up for this very ambitious time schedule. And I think in years past, that might have really appealed to my push through sensibilities, you know, that, that I see myself as that way and I value it and I get lots of accolades for being that way. And right now, all of us are looking around and just being like, oh my gosh, this crush of the crises. And we're looking more at balance. And I think people are really valuing self-care and celebrating self- care in ways that historically we haven't, you know, that's, that's what I'm seeing. And it it is so much pressure to write a book. I mean, let's not forget that it's like, you write a book, and then it comes out and you have to promote it. I mean, Grant, you're still in this place now. And then you're supposed to have the next book in the wings, you know, writing it so that it comes out within a year or two, and then you do the whole cycle again. Uh, You know, so for people who are doing that and writing in a consistent kind of way, it's pretty relentless. And there's not a whole lot of grace given, you know, anywhere in this industry, frankly.
0: Yeah, you said it. There's no grace given. I'm promoting my book while I'm on deadline in a week for the next one. So exactly. Yeah. uh, Sometimes I think we're living parallel lives. because. um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm questioning that the pressure of that cycle as Mm -hmm. as a lifestyle myself, especially because it's on top of everything else. So I look forward to hearing what Charlie Jane says after this short break. Welcome back, everybody. I am super thrilled to introduce Charlie Jane Anders, who is the author of Victories Greater Than Death, the first book in a new young adult trilogy, which came out in April 2021. Her other books include The City in the Middle of the Night and All the Birds in the Sky. Her fiction and journalism have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Slate, McSweeney's, Tor.com, and Tin House, among many others. With Annelie Newitz, she co-hosts the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct, And she just published Never Say You Can't Survive, a book about how to use creative writing to get through hard times, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Charlie Jane.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is so awesome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a treat for us. And I want to start with the genesis of Never Say You Can't Survive because I read on a personal level, you wrote that your father had died of COVID in 2020. And you were dealing with an assortment of family issues, and then you were also struggling with a novel that was past its deadline. And that was on top of all the global crises that we know happened in 2020 and that we're continuing to deal with today. Yet in this moment, you wrote, one thing got me through that hell year, dreaming up imaginary worlds and larger-than-life people who never lived. So I was wondering if you can tell us more about why fiction mattered and matters to you in such a world.
2: Yeah, I mean I think fiction is really the only thing that matters a lot of the time. It's the only way that we can kind of break free of the kind of uh oppressive groupthink and, you know, the kind of invisible Constraints on our sense of reality that are around us at all times. I think that it's easy, especially when things are really terrible and we're all doom scrolling, and like everybody on social media is encouraging each other to kind of get feel worse and worse and to like kind of fixate on, you know, the same set of ideas or the same set of facts. Writing and reading and consuming stories is like the only way that we can connect to our imagination that, you know, is this powerful thing that can kind of lift us out of this one version of reality into You know, a universe where anything is possible, including making radical change, including surviving, including fighting against oppressive systems. And I think that fiction is essential. The genesis of this book, by the way, it kind of goes back to 2017 when I started giving a talk called Never Say You Can't Survive. And it was about this same topic of like how to use creative writing to get through tough times. I did it at a bunch of writing conferences and it just kind of grew and grew until it became a book.
1: Hmm. That is so interesting. I, uh, is that available on YouTube or anywhere else that we can push out to our listeners? Because I think they'd love to see it.
2: I'm not actually sure. I will. I will check and I'll get back to you about that.
1: Okay, and we'll put it in the program notes if it does. You know, um, yeah. I mean, fiction obviously provides hope and helps people to imagine new worlds, but you also discuss how you can use stories to face up to debilitating fears. Um, And you wrote a story called Don't Press Charges and I Won't Sue. And you discuss in detail how that story helped you deal with your fears. So could you share that with our listeners today?
2: Yeah. So that was also back in 2017. It was like January 2017 when, you know, we were about to have a change of, of, president. And I was honestly, as a, as a transgender woman, I was feeling very, very uh, anxious and scared and kind of panic stricken about uh, this new era and what it would bring. And, you know, I felt like there was a lot of, there was a new kind of wave of, of transphobic kind of hateful language going on. Uh, from all sides. And it was just it was a really scary time. And so I wrote this story to kind of I basically couldn't do anything else until I wrote this story that was kind of this like dark dystopian, kind of very surreal, but but disturbing story about a trans woman who is captured by kind of an evil Uh, organization that's kind of associated with the government. And they're trying to use very extreme, very weird kind of horror focused, like very horror movie methods to turn her back into a cis man. And it felt like, you know, this was kind of my way of putting all my fears, all my dread and anxiety into a story. So I could contain it and kind of look at it and show someone surviving this, but also just kind of get inside it and kind of understand it a little bit better. And I think that that is one of the things that you can do in fiction. Fiction allows you to kind of play with perspective and kind of look at things from a distance but also very close up and from different, you know, viewpoints. And you can kind of get a better understanding of it and maybe kind of feel like you have more of a handle on the thing that you're worried about or angry about or just upset about. And it also can obviously provide escapism and joy and and friendship and all these other lovely things as well.
0: Yeah, I'm very interested in some of those lovely things and especially escapism, because I recently heard someone disparage escapist TV viewing in this case. Oh,
2: man. <laughs> and
0: it, it, he mentioned it as if it was equivalent to ingesting toxins, like literally, like it wasn't high-minded enough or productive enough for him. And, and and I thought about how much I've just needed escapist stories, especially in the past year, you know, just to simply lighten the load of anxiety in my mind, if nothing else, And that escapism allowed me to do so much, you know, so much more actually kind of serious work, serious with quotes around it or just survive the day. So I've come to see escapism as anything but a trivial diversion and a primary reason for why we need stories. And I I love the way that you articulated the argument for escapism in your book. And you say escapism is resistance, which I thought was a great way to put it. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to emphasize that self-care is important and self-care is part of how we survive and how we become able to help others and to make a difference. If we're not taking care of ourselves, we're It's we're just not going to be able to do anything, really. Uh, so I'm a big fan of self-care in general. But also I think that, you know, escapist fiction can be very empowering. It can be, you know, some of my favorite escapist stories are in fact, at their at their core, stories about fighting back against oppression and, you know, joining together with others. Like part of what makes some of my favorite escapist stories so powerful is that they celebrate friendship and community and chosen family and, you know, being there for each other. And often there is darkness in an escapist story, but it's darkness that, you know, is kind of offset by this light and friendliness and and joyfulness. And I think that maybe stories that encourage us not to despair that encourage us to feel powerful and to feel as though there is hope and there is you know a chance for us to work together and and build something better i think that that's incredibly powerful and and valuable and i also think that when we imagine a better world which can be include a happier nicer more you know supportive understanding world that is actually a blow against the people who want us to believe that there's only one way for the world to be and that's the way that they want it
1: huh know yeah, well said Charlie Jane thanks for that um, Grant and I started this podcast because we both have these strong communities through Nanorimo and she writes and so we were both heartened to read your take on writing together uh, even writing escapist stories together and as we're just saying you know will lead to real world change uh, there's something that you write that says um, happier kinder worlds in fiction naturally lead people to band together to try and create pockets of that experience in our world it's kind of what you were saying but in, in expanding on it. And you also wrote, and there's plenty of evidence that these fan communities feed directly into political organizing. Uh, and I think in this time, we've seen how valuable others are in every sense. And so, you know, perhaps extrapolating, going farther than, um, on just what you were saying, can you speak to this particular connection to writing and perhaps fan communities in particular?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that community is kind of increasingly important to me and to a lot of us as we've been going through really hard times i think that uh those of us who make it through are going to be the ones who have strong communities and are connected to our communities and i think that fiction really allows us to celebrate community in a couple of ways one by writing stories about people who band together people who share a bond or who you know belong to something bigger than themselves that is meaningful and positive and i think that that cannot be discounted i think that you know i'm kind of tired of like the lone protagonist who doesn't have anyone and is just like the world is kind of this you know painted backdrop or whatever i i actually like protagonists who have something that they belong to, that they care about, who have friends, who have people around them who they share values with. I think that that's really important. And I think it's something that we need to celebrate and uplift. But the other way that I think that, uh, you know, writing can help us to celebrate communities is in the real world where writers and readers and people who love stories come together to celebrate the stories that they love. And, you know, you get fan fiction writers. You also get, like, just... You know, anytime I am able to go to an event like the event that I used to have organized Writers with Drinks where I'm around a bunch of other writers and we're all together and, you know, we're all kind of just struggling to write the best stories that we can and to put, you know, something very delicate and fragile of ourselves into, you know, a piece of writing that we can then share with the world. And people, you know, when people are actually supporting each other and kind of uplifting each other through that, it can be just really, really a, amazing, not just for helping us to write, but just for helping us to live, I think.
0: Yeah, I love the way you say that. And that's been the big lesson for me with NaNoWriMo is I just can't believe the power of community. And, and one big part of community is representation, of course.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And and I love the way you wrote about it, because you said that representation in fiction is not just some academic question of fairness, it's a matter of survival. And the reason I like that is because I think some people do think about it in those kind of logical terms of fairness and not so much in in terms of that more, you know, immediate sense of survival. And so I was wondering why representation is a matter of survival and if you can speak to that a bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that if you're – if people are not uh, visible in stories, then it's easier to erase them in real life. It's easier to kind of not see their humanity. And I think – until fairly recently, a lot of our the, our stories that we held up and, and celebrated were stories that really only, you know, recognized the humanity of certain types of people and, you know, mostly people from like the dominant group. And that, I think, made it easier to commit atrocities and to, you know, perpetuate oppressive systems against the rest of us. Um, when, you know, speaking as a trans person, uh, when, you know, when I see trans people being treated as just like a joke or just as, you know, this weird person who doesn't, you know, I don't understand what they're doing in, in a story. And, and trans creators are are not kind of centered in that conversation, trans and non-binary creators and, and gender non-conforming creators. It does feel hurtful. And I think that, uh, you know, we've seen over and over again with, you know, in recent years, the rise of books but also movies and TV shows that celebrate you know heroes and just like ordinary people from all different communities and all different marginalized groups we've seen you know how it translates to self-esteem and how it translates to kind of more social progress in general and obviously it also creates a backlash but i think that overall it's really positive because when people consume stories that that uplift everybody then everybody can be uplifted in real life.
1: Yeah, well, Grant and I were talking about the no pain, no gain approach to writing in life before you came on uh, and how maybe sometimes we've been guilty of that ourselves, you know, advising people to grin and bear it when it comes to finishing books. Uh, And so what's your take on this, especially in these times, if a writer should push through, you know, whether it be depression or anger or grief or fatigue in order to write or, you know, you mentioned self-care earlier. So how do you manage
2: yeah, I mean, I used to be very kind of like no pain no gain in my approach to writing. I used to be very much like I'm just going to tough it out. I'm going to like, you know, I used to be a uh, a long-distance runner and like you have this thing when you're running like 10 miles or whatever where you're like, okay, I've got a, a you know, a cramp, I've got a stitch in my side. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to run through the pain. <laughs> right. And you know, I can't comment on whether that works for for running. I think it probably does until it doesn't, until you actually get an injury that you that you can't tough out. But I think that with writing, it's this, you know, such a personal, vulnerable, creative thing to be doing that I think that that can be really counterproductive. It can actually lead to more paralysis. I do. I mean, I love that NaNoWriMo is so empowering. And so, you know, I feel like the overall feeling that I get from NaNoWriMo is one of you know, just encouragement and friendliness and just like everybody kind of cheering each other on, which is part of what I love about the organization and about the, the that month. It's always like a really happy time for me to be around people who are doing that. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you treat it as this thing where you have to kind of tough it out, it's not going to be good for you or your writing. It might result in writing that you're not super happy with later, which obviously you can revise, but sometimes, you know, it just, you can't find the story you're trying to tell. And I think that sometimes you just have to be gentle with yourself and kind of give yourself a little bit of a break. But also, you know, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling upset, you know, honor those feelings, find a way to kind of use that of those emotions in your work if you can, but also treat them as diagnostic instruments. Like sometimes you get stuck and you're like, oh, I feel Like garbage, and I just can't work on this thing. And like, it's just making me upset or unhappy to work on this thing. And I just feel, you know, like maybe I'm doing it wrong. Those things can be diagnostic. Those things can tell you that maybe there's something about your story that you need to take a step back and think about because maybe deep down you know that you don't entirely believe in what you're writing, or, you know, there's something about it that is just not clicking for you. And maybe taking a a beat and just kind of stepping back and thinking about it or putting it aside for a little while and working on something else might allow you to see it more clearly. I think that, you know, people, this isn't running. It's something that involves your your guts and your brain and your heart and, you know, all of your most vulnerable parts. I, I know I keep using the word vulnerable, but I, I really do think that that's important to recognize. I think that, you know, people need to take their own feelings seriously.
0: I love that you use the word diagnostic there. I never heard it quite used in that way. But it is such an interesting balancing act, and it's so personal, you know, when you mm-hmm. hit these walls and, and then what they mean and then whether you push beyond them or not, you know. Um, and I love your running metaphor, too, because I'm a runner. And uh, I think sometimes that, that idea of, or, or the training as a runner is perfect for being a writer, but sometimes, like you say, it can be kind of harmful as well. Well in closing, Charlie Jane, I was wondering if there's a message in the book that we haven't touched on or one that you want to talk about more, especially for those writers. I loved what you said about NanaRimo. So and and when this airs, there are going to be a bunch of people getting ready to write during November. So if there's anything in particular you can impart to them, that'd be especially a treat.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that I want people to get out of this book and that I want people to kind of, you know, carry in their minds as they're writing is that your voice is important. And your voice specifically is important and that, you know, developing your voice, honing your voice, listening to yourself and, you know, getting better at kind of listening to those imaginary people in your head that you're creating is, you know, it can be a really joyful, fun, liberating process that can help you to stay whole when the world is, you know, maybe not in such a great place. But it's also just like it's about kind of getting better at understanding yourself. And I think that, you know, I don't think that writing is therapy necessarily. I don't think that writing has to be catharsis or that it has to like be you working through your own issues necessarily. But I do think that getting better at writing inevitably involves getting getting a little bit more self-knowledge because you have to kind of recognize the pitfalls that you're likely to fall into. You have to kind of get to know your own bad habits as a writer and your own kind of like the weird way your own particular brain works. It's like you're writing a piece of music that's going to be played on this one particular instrument that, you know, is like no other instrument in the world because it's your brain and it's what you're using to kind of put it into the world. Kind of you're the, you know, you're the one who's performing it in a way. Um, And I think that honoring your own voice Listening to yourself, finding ways to hear yourself better, like reading your work out loud and, you know, just understanding your own emotional state as you write is, I think, really important to doing your best work. And I also want to just reiterate community, find ways to not be alone with this. Like one of the things I love about NaNoWriMo is when I am obviously during COVID, it's different. But when I go into certain cafes in the city, I know there's going to be like groups of people there all doing NaNoWriMo, all kind of sitting together. You know, I have a friend who organizes nano rhino meetups at this one cafe that I love. And uh, I think that that's just amazing. And if you can find a way to do that and have it be a thing where you have people around who are also doing the thing that you're doing, that's just, that's so powerful.
1: Amen to that. Thanks, Charlie Jane.
0: Yeah, thank you, Charlie Jane.
1: Yeah,
2: thank you so much for taking
1: the time to check
2: out my book. And, and thanks for this wonderful conversation. And thanks for everything you do to keep people writing.
0: We will be right back with today's book trend.
1: Well, today's book trend is a fun new trend. Not so new, maybe. Consolidation. Uh, The most recent big consolidation we saw was Hachette Book Group buying up yet another pretty big publishing house, in this case Workman Publishing, for a cool $240 million. Uh, I am paying attention to consolidation because I am of the firm mindset that it is not good for authors or readers, and uh, from a personal standpoint, Hachette bought Seal Press a few years ago, and I used to work at Seal. So this new acquisition of Workman hits close to home for me.
0: Yeah, this is a topic that's been, I don't know, it's been happening for years or decades, I know. And now we have Hachette, which is one of the the big four publishers, which, and they used to be, just so people know, it used to be big six publishers a few years ago, prior to the merger of Penguin Random House. And uh, because a lot of people no longer think that Macmillan is in the same league as these other houses, and Macmillan's plenty big, anyway, the big four are HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Hachette, and Penguin Random House.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to watch honestly because the big houses are eating up the little houses. You know, it means that when this happens, the little houses lose the things that made them indie and special in the first place. And big publishers always make a show about how important the culture is of the publishing company that they're acquiring and how they intend to keep the culture intact. But part of what makes the culture special at those smaller houses is the very fact that they're out there being an underdog, you know, and being scrappy and competing against the big guys. So once a house gets subsumed in this way it's just not the same you know people leave the culture changes and it's sort of like the stepford wives of uh, book houses
0: i don't like thinking of a publisher as a stepford wife
1: (laughs) i know it's a terrible image and i'm sorry uh you know and i'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are very happy with their publishing deals from big four houses but i do wish this trend of eating up smaller houses would stop
0: Yeah, and I want to end with a big plug for seeking out indie books. You know, they don't get the marketing of books put out by bigger publishers, which means they often don't get reviewed and don't end up on best-of lists or get awards. The smaller presses are the ones publishing, in my view, more interesting, more groundbreaking books. So it's, it's worth buying a book from a smaller press by an author you've never heard of. Many of the books we talk about are the ones we know of because big houses put big marketing budgets behind them.
1: Yeah, so true. And so we'll be continuing to celebrate indie books uh, as much as we can. You know, obviously, it's also contributes to big names are also the ones that we want on this podcast, you know, so just (laughs) acknowledging that there's sort of a perpetuating cycle going on. It's hard to break. Uh, That said, you know, we'll be here next week with maybe a big author, maybe a small house author, you never know, we're going to mix it up. Uh, Keep us in your queue, let people know that you're listening to Right-Minded, share your thoughts with us. Uh, you can can find us wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks. See you next week.